Let's pray. Father, we just thank You so much for who You are. We are so thankful that You are a good shepherd. That You are a good Father. Full of mercy. Abounding in loving kindness and grace. Compassion. God, I just ask that You would help us to see You clearly today. Um, Holy Spirit, that You would come and teach us. Help us to view You rightly. Help us to view the people You have made, others, rightly. And if there's any missing today, would You find them, bring them home? So Lord Jesus, just, uh, just come and um, be, our, be our comforter and our help. In Jesus' name, Amen. One of the things we've been seeing in Matthew's Gospel is that Jesus doesn't have a problem being controversial. Um, He's happy to drop bombs in conversations and let them go off and explode our ways of thinking. That He's bringing a different kind of kingdom to this world. An invasive kingdom. He's ushering in something new to shift the way we used to think. And He commands those who hear Him to experience a total conversion away from their current worldview that they had in whatever world they exist, in that case at that time, and from their current one into something new. And He demands from us a new mind and a rewiring of our heart inside, of our soul that's going to alter our whole view of reality, our whole way of life. So in other words, Jesus is asking us to repent, to change our minds. So as we go back into this book for the next few months before Advent hits, we're going to focus and find that Jesus is a controversial king who says things that take religious leaders, that take his own followers by surprise. And that he's not being controversial just for fun. He's not just looking to do it to gain a crowd or to be like a shock jock just trying to entertain people. He's doing it to revolutionize their outlooks, um, to change the way that the men and women who listen to him look at the world. And so he's turning everything that they thought upside down, right? Or rather, right side up. He wants us to move away from a worldly perspective to a heavenly one. That's what He's after. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to look at Jesus' revolutionary take on things like divorce, forgiveness, authority, conflict, materialism, money. And we're going to see that He is like a Category 5 hurricane that He is going to go through and He's going to decimate our faulty views about God and about this world. And that the breath of His words are meant to challenge us, to change us. And that they operate in this destructive way, but also in a constructive way that He's trying to reshape. He's trying to make new. So He is like the generous builder or helper after the hurricane comes to build it back to better than it was before. 
So if we go through our lives, even as Christians, pretty much thinking the same things, we probably aren't becoming more like Jesus. We're probably just becoming more like ourselves or more like those around us. And throughout Matthew's Gospel, one of his favorite targets is the religious elite within his own people. And he doesn't target the conservative Pharisee or the liberal Sadducee to make them more religious or to confirm them in their own biases about God and about the Scriptures that they're reading and about their traditions. Nor is he giving liberal Gentile people permission to be more idolatrous and to follow after their own desires. But again, he is introducing a new way, a revolutionary way of thinking that is going to correct their tightly held perceptions. And I was thinking that it could be wrong or that I could be wrong, but for many of us in here, what would shock us about Jesus is probably how He would bust up our conservative take on Christianity. And so that's not to say that He wouldn't also bust up a tolerant liberal's take. He would, but for conservatives, He'd be making us who are wired this way uncomfortable. We need to hear a word that Kate reminded me of this week actually from the late Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer who in his book The Church at the End of the 20th Century and of course we're now into the next one but Schaeffer said this, one of the greatest injustices we do to our young people is to ask them to be conservative. Christianity is not conservative but revolutionary. End quote. And so our goal is not to take conservative positions on any issue just because they look that way, but to the best of our ability with the Holy Spirit's help, to yield to King Jesus' words on every issue, to submit to what Jesus says. Because remember, His kingdom is a kingdom. It's not a democracy. And so we need to submit to His rule and trust Him. And so we're not conservatives first. We are Christians. We are Christ-ins. So we are to take the words of Christ first. And so this morning we're going to zoom in and look at how Jesus talks about His Father. How Jesus talks about God. What do you think God is really like? Really like. Tozer said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So this is one of the greatest questions that we could ever ask. And the way we're going to answer is going to shape not only how we view God, but how we view other people. So specifically, we're going to look at Jesus' perspective on how His Father views the most insignificant of people and what that reveals about the kind of Father He is. And like Jesus normally does, He's going to do so with a story, a parable. We're just looking at verses 10 to 14 of Matthew 18 today, but I wanted to read the whole passage and what Bob had talked about last week because these are linked together. So Matthew 18, 1 to 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It's God's Word to us today. So first sentence of, of 10. Notice how it references these little ones. These little ones. Meaning that Jesus is talking about the same little ones that He just spoken of before in verse 6. So who are these little ones that Jesus is talking about that He doesn't want us to despise? And I think there is a literal answer and there is a figurative and spiritual answer. The literal answer is that the little ones Jesus is talking about are children. Children like the child that initially walked up to Jesus when Jesus called him. The word Jesus uses for child here indicates that, he would, that, that we would think of this child as a minor, to use our terms and a minor who hadn't even hit puberty. So we're talking about a young kid. And we know from, from that that the children Jesus identifies in verse 5 are the same as the little ones in verse 6. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. So he's putting those two categories together. But with the word little ones... The Greek word indicates the size and the status of the child. So while child is just focused on there's a child, this one is indicating size and status when he says little ones. And so one of the reasons he uses this word is to bring a different connotation and that it's focused on the insignificance of the child, the relative unimportance of the child. In that culture, children were the most powerless and had the least status out of anyone. They had no authority in and of themselves. Like all patriarchal societies and like women, they were born in a patriarchal society where they were defined only in relation to the man of the house. And kids were expected to obey and to learn from the teaching of their parents. Now, obviously, Jewish people believe that children were a blessing. But there's also this sense of children obey, they learn from me. I'm the dad. But here, the children are doing the teaching. Jesus puts them front and center in the crowd of His closest all-male disciples as the models of how to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And he commands his disciples to not despise them, which again, they would have been prone to do. They never would have expected the least in society to be the greatest in his society. That made sense. They would have never expected that. Who's the greatest in your kingdom? Puts forward a child. So Jesus says, don't look down upon them. Don't show contempt for them. And so we need to hear this too. We must not give in to the anti-Jesus attitude that children are to be seen and not heard. They deserve more than just crazy faces and silly sounds. They're to be honored. They're to be welcomed as bearers of God's image, just like adults. And as the model representatives of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. So we need to ask ourselves, what are some of the ways we despise children? We, thinking corporately as a culture, we despise children when we approve of abortion, of children inside of the womb. Whenever we give an adult woman the sovereign authority to use her own body to kill an unborn child within them, or whenever a man pressures a woman to do so, we are despising children. We despise children when we treat illegally filmed Planned Parenthood videos as more criminal than the inhumane actions of Planned Parenthood abortionists and fetus traffickers. We also have plenty of ways of showing contempt, not just for kids inside the womb, but outside of the womb. I was thinking as men, we can despise children and we can despise women when we treat dealing with children as women's work, as if the man's work is the real significant stuff. That attitude is demeaning to both women and to children. Whenever I give off the attitude that I do the important kingdom work right now as I'm preaching, and Kate, while she's at home with sick kids and sick herself with a cold, as if she's doing something less significant. That's not true. If I give off that attitude, it's opposing to Jesus. Whenever churches act as if kids' ministry is minor leagues, this is the big stuff right here. This is the important stuff. We're opposing Jesus. Whenever any church institution sweeps child abuse or sexual abuse under the rug, whenever they don't report it to the police, those churches, those leaders should have a millstone tied around their necks. And the millstone was heavy. Only, only a big donkey could turn it. So it was using a big image tied around the necks, Drowned into the sea as fast as you possibly can. Probably breaking the neck, I'd imagine. It's a violent image. But Jesus is serious about despising children. He goes even further using children as an example to highlight any group of sidelined and mistreated people. So the word for despise is not only felt by the victimizers, meaning they feel the despising, I feel contempt for you. You're so much smaller than me. I look down upon you. But it's also felt by the victims. That's what this word implies. As one scholar put it, it is a visible and wounding act. Sometimes Jesus will highlight a group of people sidelined by a culture to name specifically their value and their worth. That's what he's doing here. 
So, this has a ton to say to the issues in America today. And the church should be at the forefront of that. Black lives, Muslim lives, homosexual lives, illegal lives, unborn lives, elderly lives, disabled lives matter. They're never to be diminished by the followers of Jesus. And at times, they're to be specifically brought to the front to our awareness that we do not despise and that they are to be seen as valued. So I say that to keep us from over-spiritualizing this text and to miss God's big view of small boys and girls and those groups of people that the church, His disciples, may look down upon for whatever cultural, national, or religious reason. However, we know there is a deep spiritual meaning as well. It's not just about not looking down on kids or marginalized people. Jesus' point about the little ones, the children, is that the disciples would not only treat them differently because He values them differently than the world does, but that they, as adults, would turn and become like them. So He's saying something spiritual. He's not saying physically become a child. He's saying inwardly become a child. He desires that they experience a conversion on the inside to become dependent. And so it's in this that Jesus is showing them that those who don't appear to be royalty on the outside or among the cultural and religious influencers are the ones that the kingdom belongs to. It's the insignificant ones. It's the powerless ones, the dependent ones, the outsiders, the outcasts, the sinners, the lost. They're the ones. And they're the ones when they recognize that they're lost. They recognize that they're dependent. They recognize that there's, no that there's no sufficiency in and of themselves. And they go to Jesus. That's the kind of follower that Jesus is talking about as the greatest. And so according to Jesus, you can be an adult on the outside and be a child on the inside. And so little ones here are anybody. Anybody who is poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So second half of verse 10. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So the reason Jesus gives us for not showing contempt in this case, I was kind of looking at the wider case, but here, don't despise them for, meaning because, here's the reason I'm about to give you, is their angels continually see the face of my Father. Hmm. It's kind of an interesting text. We might make a mistake here, I think, and get too tied up in trying to figure out this angel thing. But I think there's something more important. Again, Jesus wants us to change our perspective from the perspective of earth to the perspective of heaven. And I think that's why He says in heaven twice in this verse. And then again, he talks about his Father in heaven in verse 14. He's drawing our attention that we need to have our eyes look through heaven's eyes. Not through earth's eyes. And so, he's trying to give us a window. He's trying to open up the heavenly realms to establish this great value 
that Jesus has for the little ones. The little ones have the eye of heaven upon them. I think it's likely that these little ones have angels assigned to them. This seems to be the natural reading of the phrase, their angels, right? This is where some get the idea of a guardian angel for every individual child or every believer. Now, whether or not that's true, I think it's too small of a view. We know from the epistle of the Hebrews that angels can show up at any time. That we can entertain them unaware. We know that angels show up regularly in the Bible to God's people. We know that Matthew talks about angels a lot, especially in the first part. And every time he references angels, he's talking about angels. At least it seems that way. So I think Jesus is saying that the group of little ones that follow Him have the angels in heaven behind them, for them. One scholar, one actually one that I respect a lot, thought the angels are just a way of talking about the spiritual destiny of the little ones, really spiritualizing the text, making it sound like, well, actually that's referring to us as angels, as spirits before God's presence later, that that's where we're headed. It kind of feels like a cop-out to me. I think we always get a little bit nervous when we start talking about supernatural beings, right? When we, when we read Daniel and Revelation, it gets, gets a little apparently wacko, but it's, but it's not. God is trying to open up the curtain for us and to say that this world is pregnant with a deeper magic than it seems on a day-to-day basis. That there is angels. Jesus is telling His followers that the world may not have your back, the religious may not have your back, but angels do. So, are you feeling insignificant? If you're following Jesus, you're not insignificant. Supernatural beings who are in the very presence of God, the glory of God, are assigned to you. And He's reminding us to never look down on anyone who trusts Jesus, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, because when we act that way, when we despise them, we're missing the heart of heaven and we're entertaining worldly thinking. That those people that we're despising have supernatural beings before the presence of God behind them. I think there's something even bigger that this this context establishes. What's most important for us to see is that it's not just angels, but it's the gaze of the Father that's upon us. While this part of the verse simply shows your angels, and again, not I don't think in a sense of guardian, but just that all the angels are behind the church, that not just that their gaze is upon you, but that God's accessing you. He is searching for you. He is desiring you. The Father is like a shepherd who goes looking for a sheep no matter where they wander off to, no matter how needy you are, no matter how insignificant you feel, how much of a failure, how much of a sinner you find yourself to be, if you go to Jesus humbly, the very face of God shines upon you. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 says this, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So the humble catch the eye of God in heaven. The ruler of heaven, the maker of earth, looks at the lost even when they stray. Looks at the humble. He will not let them leave and destroy themselves, but He will find them and rescue them. The one who sits in heaven and made earth looks at you. And this is a joyful, favorable look when you humble yourself before Him. This is the kind of person God looks at and searches for. And it should be the kind of people that we look at and search for. And we know this is the case, again, because of verses like that in Isaiah, but also because of what Jesus is about to say in the story. But first, a brief bunny trail. Some of you have noticed that I didn't read verse 11, and that's because it's not there in the ESV. If you look, it jumps from 10 to 12. The reason the ESV does this is because the verse is only in some of the manuscripts of Matthew. And it's the phrase, the phrase, for the Son of Man came to save the lost, is not in the earliest manuscripts, but is inserted in later manuscripts. So don't we believe as a church in the inerrant Scriptures without any mistake or any error? Yes, we do. We believe that wholeheartedly. But we believe in inerrancy in the original manuscripts, which again, no one has. Those are copies. So not every manuscript from antiquity nor every modern translation. But we do believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of the original manuscripts of Scripture. And that's always essential to remember. But we don't need to get too worked up about this because even if this verse didn't ever really come from Matthew's pen, it was in Luke's. So what Matthew 18.11 says is found in Luke 19.10. So that statement's true. Luke says it. And that's something crucial for us to remember. When you find a verse or an entire passage bracketed off in your Bible or a footnote saying that something was only in some manuscripts like the woman caught in adultery in the Gospel of John or the last big chunk of verses in Mark, remember that those are never issues that are contradicting critical doctrines. Whether or not the full resurrection account is in Mark, it's in the other Gospels. Whether or not Jesus did or did not deal with a woman caught in adultery, that's how He dealt with self-righteous people and that's how He dealt with sinners. So you're never going to find something like Jesus is in God. Jesus got done with ministry one day, went back to Capernaum and He sinned horribly. You're not going to find that. Those aren't the things that will be missing. So don't freak out too much about whether this verse made the cut in your Bible or not. In this case, be assured that even if it's missing here in Matthew, Jesus still said the very same thing. Luke. So, let's get off the bunny trail. Back to the sheep and the shepherd. But actually, not yet. One thing I do want to say about that is sometimes why that's important is because we can read and we can actually ask questions and we don't want to bring it up. Or maybe preacher, we just kind of want to, let's just kind of ignore that. Let's not mention that footnote there. And some of you are looking at your Bibles, maybe a King James or something and going, wait, it's right there. What's going on? Why did he skip that verse? Um, But it's okay to ask questions. And um, critics are going to ask questions. And they're going to say, hey, it's things like that. that um, what's, what's up with that? What's the story? And 
This is a way to tell them at least what happened here in this case. All right, verses 12 and 13. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. And so Jesus starts his parable with a question. And again, we've got to love it when Jesus asks questions. He's always setting us up for something. Saying, what do you think? What's your opinion, disciples? So again, we see that he's about to challenge their perspective on things. He wants them to see the Father in a particular way that they're not used to seeing Him as. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, last time I preached, we discussed the parable of the prodigal son. And we learned how Jesus used that parable to confront the religious leader's view of pagan Gentiles and to confront them in their own self-righteousness as the elder brother. And interestingly, this parable is in that chapter in Luke. But in that case, the target audience is different. It's the Pharisees. It's the self-righteous. Here, Jesus is not after changing the religious leader's view of sinners, but He's after shifting His disciples' view of the lost sheep of Israel. And so while Luke is geared toward reaching Gentiles, which the whole book is, Matthew is geared toward reaching Jews. But in both cases, Jesus is reshaping and scandalously challenging their view of God. So in this parable, Jesus is concerned that His disciples change their opinion of insignificant ones. And that in order to do so, their view of God must be changed. The way our view of people will change is when our view of God changes. That's how it happens. So what does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about His people? Number one, it teaches us that, it teaches us that the image Jesus chooses to use for God, though a familiar one, was unlikely. Shepherds, were looked down upon as a bit dirty and unclean. Jewish texts reveal that they weren't even allowed to be witnesses and were considered robbers because sometimes they would go into other people's property. Though the Old Testament shows that God is a shepherd, the job was looked down upon. It was an ugly vocation. And it's not a surprise that Jesus would picture God in this kind of shameful way because after all, He Himself was coming in a surprising way. And as we know, He Himself is a shepherd. Secondly, this whole parable and really the whole section reveals that God is after the One. The individualistic feel of this passage is critical. The number one is mentioned several times. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, he goes in search of the one that went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. And so why this big concern over 1% of the sheep being gone? I mean, that's no big deal. That's 1%. That's nothing. To God, it's a big deal. To God, one is a big deal. He doesn't give up on any of His sheep. Thirdly, we need to contrast the powerlessness of the sheep 
with the powerful focus of the shepherd. This little guy, this the sheep, is meandering off from the pack and he is in trouble. Wandering is the right word for it. So there's an aimlessness to the sheep. There's no sense of destination. Lost. Wandering around. But there is this resolve of the shepherd. This intensity of focus. He is going to go get that sheep. He intentionally leads. There's this sense of, I'm now going away from all these 99 and I'm going to get you. I'm going to find you. He's going to find the one. And for us, we will never find what we're looking for in life whenever we wander. We just keep wandering aimlessly, trying to find it. We will never find what we're looking for when we wander. But the shepherd always finds who he's looking for. He always finds him. He's always searching. In fact, sheep usually lay down when they wander. They give up and they don't give back. And they don't go back. They just wander for a while and then eventually sit down, give up, don't go back. That's what sheep do. It's not what the shepherd does. He stands up. He chases He goes to find the sheep. Fourth, we need to see that the sheep are not the finders, but the found. And so by nature, sheep are lost wanderers. By grace, they are found. It's not natural for sheep to seek the shepherd, but it's the nature of the shepherd to seek the sheep. So this story shows our move away from the Father. We tend, we're prone to move away from the Father. But the Father is prone to move toward us. One author said it like this, When God pardons, therefore, He does not say He understands our weakness or makes allowances for our errors. Rather, He disposes of, He finishes with the whole of our dead life and raises us up with a new one. He does not so much deal with our derelictions as He does drop them down the black hole of Jesus' death. He forgets our sins in the darkness of the tomb. He remembers our iniquities no more in the oblivion of Jesus' expiration. He finds us, in short, in the desert of death, not in the garden of improvement. And in the power of Jesus' resurrection, He puts us on His shoulders rejoicing and brings us home. Number five, we need to see the joy of the shepherd. The joy of the shepherd. This shepherd is thrilled that he got his sheep back. He's not cranky about having to go find the sheep and how long it took and what the sheep did. He doesn't berate the sheep or beat the sheep. He rejoices over his found sheep. So our God is a happy God. And He's happy to find sinners. Sometimes we have to say it out loud. loud. God is a happy God. He is a rejoicing God. He takes more pleasure in celebrating the strays than chastising them for strain. He's not a reluctant Savior. He actively loves them. He manifestly rejoices over them. And how do you think the other 99 feel here? Again, you got a little tag toward elder brother mindset. That's how they feel. 
But Jesus makes a point to say that he's happy over finding the one stray than he is over those that stayed in the pack. Lastly, in this parable, Jesus is calling the disciples to be different kinds of leaders than the religious leaders. So instead of avoiding the lost, instead of looking over the ones the world might avoid or that the religions might avoid, we're to go find them. And so if our view of God doesn't change, our view of people won't change. But if we see God in the way that this parable pictures Him, how can we not be like Him? If that's how God is, to me, how can I not be that way with other people? The Pharisees and Sadducees had a very narrow view of God's people. Jesus had a more inclusive one. He was not sent from heaven to just get the leaders of Israel. Matthew's Gospel demonstrates over and over again that He was sent to the forgotten. There's that great phrase in 1524 when He's talking to the Syrophoenician woman, I believe, and He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's a sense of I'm, I'm here to go get the lost sheep. But of course, He's gathering in Gentiles too. And I think this whole section right here is deeply personal for Matthew. Because Matthew knew what it was to be despised. He was one of the lost sheep of Israel. After all, he was a Jew. His name was also, he's also referred to as Levi. He was a tax collector for Rome, for the occupying empire. And thus, he was a traitor. He was looked down upon his people as an outsider. Yet, what does Jesus do? He turns His face toward Him and He calls Him to be among His followers. Matthew didn't die in his sins. But he didn't die not because he did anything. Matthew was literally just sitting there. He was sitting, sinning. He was tax collecting. And that's when Jesus came and found Him. And so Matthew knew that the will of God was to rescue people just like him. He knew it. He felt it. That was him. He, in a sense, is the one. Verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Sometimes we treat the will of God as this hidden thing that we're trying to go look for. But Jesus says here that God's will is not hidden. His will is that not, that not one of the sheep spiritually die. That's the Father's will. His will is that 100% of His sheep will be found. God's rescue mission will not be denied. Your will, my will, may be prone to wander. But God's will is that when you and I wander, that we won't perish when we do. Because in the person of Jesus... The good shepherd, he died for us. For we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us looked to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so God was going to make sure that his sheep never perish by taking the striking that they deserved for wandering off. To take it into himself. To take it into his own person. And so that's the Gospel of Zechariah 13, which we read this morning. One of the things in the context of Zechariah is that the prophet is the prophet, meaning him, God's prophet, is furious about how the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, the prophets of Israel, 
are deserting their people. Talks about it in there. You have deserted the people. They're shepherds in name only. They do not search for the people. They do not teach them the truth. They prophesy lies. And so the leaderless people of God are following idols. They turn to idolatry. And what we see there is that God's judgment is going to fall on the prophets and leaders of Zechariah's day. But we also see that God will not abandon His people. He will save a remnant within Israel. Let's look at just a couple of verses there just to highlight before we end. In Zechariah 13, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. That's verse 1. And go down to verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And so the fountain of mercy that God will break open will be the shed blood of the shepherd. And so he's saying that there is a shepherd that will take the judgment he did not deserve on behalf of the people. God struck the shepherd in the place of the sheep. Jesus was despised in the place of the despised. Jesus took the shame of sinners so that they would never have to be ashamed. The ESV says at the, at the end of verse 7, I will turn my hand against the little ones. Familiar word. Little ones. But this is not a negative turning against. Some translations like the King James actually say, I will turn my hand upon the little ones. And so while the shepherd gets the sword, the little ones, the lost sheep, get his hand. Yes, they will be refined as the next few verses say. But God will say to these sinful, seemingly insignificant, undeserving people, they are my people. So that they can say back to Him, the Lord is my God. So we know what the Father is like when we look at Jesus. When we look at His body broken. His blood shed for us. And our participation in communion is to be joyful because it's a participation in the joy of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the joy that they have for us to find us. It's a reminder that God is not reluctant in His love for you. Every single week, that's the way we do it, but He says every time we get together, do this. He's trying to remind us. We can't get it through our thick skulls and our hard hearts that He loves us. That He will never leave you or forsake you. Because His will is that you do not perish because He already died. When you died with Him, you're alive with Him. When you trust Him. When you recognize your utter dependence, insufficiency, and His utter sufficiency for you. So let's do that. Let's take communion and remember.